When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Hannah Critchlow, and in this special Naked Neuroscience series, I'm in Milan, busy stripping down breaking hot neuroscience research at the Federation of European Neurosciences 2014 Forum. In the last episode, we uncovered how moral values are contagious. By interacting with you, my values will shift a little bit towards your values. Asked if analysing Hitler's genetic fingerprint, his DNA, could have predicted his motivations and if he would have been deterred by punishment. I don't think we'll ever get to a point where you can say, well, this is what somebody's genes are and therefore they are this kind of person. And could we ever use neuroscience to create a conscious computer? One scientist's childhood fantasy. I dreamed of being able to make computers that were as intelligent as people. In this episode, we'll be looking at the science of sleep. So have you ever been up all night partying and then crashed out completely the next day? That's your brain sleep bank getting out of the red to make up your lost sleep credit. We'll discover the sleep brain bank in Fruit Flies. Except if you don't keep them awake all night partying, it's more sort of a zero dark 30, if you've seen that movie about torture in Iraq. It's, it's more that approach, for sleep deprivation, like uh, the Secret Service would do. Poor fruit flies. And they didn't even get the joy of a party to justify their sleep deprivation. And in the news, how long could you be left alone with your thoughts? Ten seconds? A minute, maybe? It turns out that most people would rather press a button to give themselves an electric shock than have 15 minutes of solitary thinking time. Especially men, they seem to want to shock themselves out of boredom, so to speak. We did have one man who pressed the button 190 times, much to our surprise. Revealing the human desire to experience and engage, sometimes repeatedly, with stimuli from the outside world. First up, I caught up with Gero Meisenbock, Professor of Neural Circuits at Oxford University, to find out what he's discovered from sleepless fruit flies. So flies actually sleep more than we do. They're quite lazy. They spend about 16 hours a day asleep. And their sleep is usually concentrated during the night. They are day active, but they also take a very long siesta in the afternoon. So they're most active in the morning and in the evening. It was actually controversial for a long time, until about 14, 15 years ago, where the flies would actually sleep. But I think now the evidence is quite clear. But you might wonder, how does a sleeping fly look like? How how do you know that the fly is asleep? It's similar to how I would know that you are asleep. First of all, we don't move, or we occasionally twitch when we sleep, but there's no walking around or running around or flying around. Second, we don't support our body weight well. A fly obviously won't lie in bed, slump in a chair, 
but it also sort of crouches um, on the floor when it's asleep. The third criterion is that it has a heightened sensory arousal threshold. So like you and I, when we are asleep, it takes a louder noise, a brighter light, a little shake to wake us up, right? Um, and the same is true for flies. And the fourth criterion is that if you take away sleep, if you keep a fly forcefully awake, it sleeps more during the following day. So it has to make up for that sleep deficit. And um, this being able to make up for a sleep deficit is also the central theme of the research that I presented today. It's widely thought that we have two control mechanisms in our brains that regulate sleep. One is the body clock, which will be familiar to many of you. And the other one is this strange device that senses whether you've got enough sleep or not. And that then determines that if you haven't got enough sleep, it puts you to sleep. And so the body clock in the brain, for example, is this little kind of cluster of nerve cells. It's a region called the suprachiasmatic nuclei. It's got about 10,000, I think, nerve cells in there, so about the size of a pinhead. And it's, if you imagine sticking a pencil up your nose, it would kind of eventually hit the suprachiasmatic nuclei. And that's the, the human brain body clock that will regulate whether you need to go to sleep or when you fall asleep and when you don't and when you're awake. And then there's also, you're saying, uh, a second system called the sleep homeostat, which can cause you to compensate for lack of sleep. If, if I haven't slept very well last night, for example, hopefully I'll be able to get a lie-in tomorrow. Exactly. You're, you're probably normally not aware that there's two mechanisms that, that influence your sleep and waking, because normally these two mechanisms operate in sync. So when your body clock says it's nighttime and you should go to sleep, your sleep homeostat, which is this other mechanism, the one that determines whether you've got enough sleep. Your sleep homeostat also says you've been awake all day, so please go to sleep now. But as you know, there are certain situations where you can dissociate the two things and they start fighting against each other. One such situation is if you've pulled an all-nighter, either for work or because you were partying, and then you will have no trouble usually going to sleep in the morning, even though your body clock will tell you to stay awake. There's also another frequently experienced situation, which happens after intercontinental travel. I, for example, then suffer these extremely painful situations where my sleep homeostat screams with fatigue, but I still can't go to sleep because the body clock keeps me awake. So there's these two brain mechanisms. I think of the sleep homeostat as actually holding the key to the big mystery why every animal that has been looked at needs sleep to survive. That's a, that's a fact. So we all, every animal needs to sleep. It will die without sleep. But nobody really knows what sleep is for. There's various ideas around, but nobody's really gotten to the heart of the problem. I don't think that by studying the circadian clock, you will. I, I view the circadian clock as an adaptive mechanism that makes sure that you do your essential sleeping at times when it hurts you least. I mean, taking your brain offline is obviously a risky thing to do. You're, you're more vulnerable, and you also have a cost of lost opportunity because you could be working or giving interviews. But if you, if you time these inactivities so that they interfere least with your lifestyle, then that's an advantage. 
And so the, the region of the brain that's involved in this sleep homeostat is almost like a bank account which measures whether you've got credit or deficit in terms of this sleep and whether you need to compensate and make up for it. The bank account is a very, very good analogy. The one that I use often is the thermostat on your living room wall. So the thermostat measures temperature and switches on the heating if it's too cold. The sleep homeostat measures waking time and puts you to sleep if you've been awake for too long. So it's a similar feedback system, a regulatory control system that determines whether you need to go to sleep and makes sure that you get enough sleep. And so you're investigating this in the fruit fly. So are you keeping them, the fruit flies up partying all night and then messing with their bank system so they're massively in the red and then trying to figure out how their brain senses that they need to put some sleep credit into their bank account? That's exactly what we do. Except we don't keep them awake all night partying. It's more sort of a zero dark 30, if you've seen that movie about torture in Iraq. It's, it's more that approach, for sleep deprivation, like the Secret Service would do. What we have is we have our flies in sleep monitors, and we rattle them all night. So whenever they try to nod off, a heavy weight drops down and rattles the whole apparatus, and so that they, they can't go to sleep. And we found mutant flies that cannot put in these extra few hours of sleep. So in them, the sleep homeostat is broken. So you sleep-deprive them, and they don't sleep more, and also their basal sleep. So if you just measure how much they sleep during a regular day, as I said before, a normal fly sleeps about 16 hours. These mutant flies, they sleep only seven or eight. And as a result of this chronic sleep deprivation, they have severe cognitive impairments. Now, how do you measure a cognitive impairment in a fly that you can't talk to? You test its ability to learn and remember. Like humans, if you sleep-deprive flies they don't remember their lessons well. So cramming before an exam is never a good idea. And there's many mental illnesses that are associated with sleep disruption. So, for example, Alzheimer's, dementia, even depression um, and lack of motivation, for example. And so it's really crucial that we try to understand this, this bank of sleep monitor that we have in our brains. How on earth are you measuring this in this minuscule fruit fly brain in their, in their very small circuits of nerve cells in their brain, in their tube whilst you're rattling and keeping them awake? So, first of all, how do we measure sleep in a fly? We measure sleep by putting individual animals into glass tubes that are about five centimeters long. And these glass tubes get bisected by an infrared light beam. And whenever the fly walks up and down the tube, it crosses the light beam every few seconds or so. And we simply count how many beam breaks occur over time. And sleep in flies is defined as any pause where there's no beam breaks for at least five minutes. So it's not that flies have extremely fragmented sleep. They, they tend to sleep in shorter bouts than, than we humans do, but there's many episodes of sleep that extend for many, many hours. The project that we did started with a postdoc, Jeff Donnelly, looking for flies that had neurons in their brain that could be activated artificially. And he found that when he activated a specific small group of neurons, just about 12 cells in each hemisphere of the brain out of the 100,000 or so cells. When he turned on these neurons artificially, the flies would nod off. They would go to sleep. And um, then he looked at some of the genes that were active in these neurons, and he found one that, when it was mutant, rendered the flies insomniac, 
and also unable to compensate for a sleep deficit. And at that stage, a second postdoc joined the project, and he had the fabulous technical skill of being able to insert a tiny, tiny, tiny glass tube into the brain of these flies and actually measure the electrical currents from these neurons. And um, what he discovered was that in the mutant flies, these neurons were electrically silent. As I've told you before, Jeff discovered these cells because they become electrically active when a fly is sleeping. So if you can't switch these cells on, you're sleepless. And that's exactly how the human brain works as well, isn't it? Using, we have, we scale it up a bit, there's 100 billion nerve cells or so in the human brain, but we use this electrical activity, electricity essentially, that uses to switch a light on in your house in order to switch on particular areas of the brain and nerve cells in the brain to switch on a circuit. So the same kind of thing is going on in this fruit fly to switch on sleep using a very discrete 12 nerve cells within their brain. Yes, brains are devices that run on electricity. That's something that was discovered about 230 years ago in Italy by Luigi Galvani, who showed that when he touched a frog's lumbar nerve to essentially a battery, the frog's legs twitched. So this showed for the first time that all information in the brain is encoded in the form of electrical impulses. So streams of electrical impulses represent what we see a stream of electrical impulses are emitted by your ear as you listen to this podcast and are then interpreted by other structures in the brain. Streams of electrical impulses are fired in my brain now, hopefully, as I'm trying to make sense and, and explain what's going on. And also streams of electrical impulses control the movements of the muscles that are important for me to produce the speech. What was surprising was that there's, that there's also dedicated cells whose streams of electrical impulses encode the need to sleep. And there's particular genes within these fruit flies that render those particular subset of nerve cells sensitive to electrical impulse. And if you don't have the right version of those genes, then you basically can't get to sleep. That's correct, yes. And so does a similar thing happen in humans that suffer from insomnia? So there's a homologous structure of nerve cells in the human brain these are also neurons that are electrically active when we sleep. These neurons, like those of the fly that we have studied, are the targets of general anesthetics. So general anesthetics activate these cells. And as you know what the effect of general anesthesia is, it puts you to sleep. And so is this, have you basically found the bank of sleep that can figure out whether you're in credit or debit for sleep? I think we have found an element of the bank. We don't know whether it's the actual area where the account is kept, right, where your balance sheet is being monitored. What we know is that what these neurons do is that they convey the message that you are in debit and that you need to go to sleep. How credit and debit get accounted is one of the pressing questions for future research. We'd love to be able to discover what actually is monitored in the brain to determine how high or how low your sleep balance is. And what are the next steps for your research in the fruit fly in order to find out more about how problems with sleep might possibly lead to Alzheimer's, for example, so problems with learning and memory, and, and also problems with mood and depression? Um, in terms of learning and memory, this is a a problem that's relatively straightforward to tackle in flies because we know how to measure their ability to learn and to remember. 
and now we also know and can control their, their sleepiness or their, their, their sleep deficit. So what we are now trying to do, of course, is, is link these two processes in a series of very simple experiments. As far as something like depression is concerned, that's much trickier because we don't really know whether flies do get depressed or whether they are anxious or whether they have any kinds of emotions like that. I think it would be surprising if they didn't have a, a, an element of fear or anxiety, but there's no well-established way to measure that yet. And in terms of the gene that your postdoc found in the lab, is there a human homologue for that that's involved in insomnia? There is many human homologues of um, this gene. Unfortunately, at this stage, too many. We don't know exactly which one the right gene is to look for, and to my knowledge, nobody has really linked any of these genes to insomnia in humans, but that may just be because nobody has looked for an association. So one of the things that you're really excited about, about your future work in your lab, can you mention some of the um, exciting studies that you're looking forward to conducting? I think sleep is a, is a wonderful and exciting process because it's deeply mysterious and I think we have now sort of gotten it to the stage where you can, you can see the fog lifting a little bit. You can see the underlying mechanisms, uh, the nuts and bolts, the wheels impacting with another gear and so forth. So it becomes more like, like, like clockwork rather than just a mystery, which is very exciting. We've also recently found a way in which arousal-promoting substances can actually alter that sleep switch. That's something that's very interesting. So the the general problem that I find myself thinking about more and more is the representation of time in the brain and um, processes that require time to unfold. So sleep, obviously, is something that occurs on a regular temporal rhythm. If you think of, for instance, the sleep homeostat having to monitor changes that occur gradually over many, many, many hours... It's not really clear how neurons do that, how, how they change their activity over many, 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 many hours. Because as I've said before, information is encoded in tiny, very short impulses, electrical impulses, right? So how can such a tiny electrical impulse that lasts a thousandth of a second be used to represent information over timescales of, of hours? A related question that we are currently studying is how information is represented over time scales of a few hundred milliseconds to a few seconds or minutes. And in order to get at that problem, we, we study how flies make up their minds. You probably know that if you are faced with a difficult choice, you think longer about a hard choice than about an easy one. And we've recently discovered that flies take a moment too. And we've found neurons that are involved in that. And again, we've found a gene that interferes with the process. So we, we can now study what's happening on, during these few seconds while a fly considers its options and then makes a choice, which fundamentally is a, is a problem that's similar, that you have to hold information in your mind over time periods that are longer than the impulse of a single cell is how the fly decides to stay taking information in for a longer period of time until it makes its decision, because it's a tricky decision that it's faced with. So it's it's biding its time to collect more information before it makes its decision. And you're trying to figure out what's going on in the brain, in the fly, when it's doing that. That's exactly what we're trying to do. And will that information also give us some concept of the perception of time within our own minds? I'm not sure, possibly. 
Thanks to Gary Meisenbach, Professor of Neural Circuits at Oxford University. Next, how long could you be left alone with your thoughts? Ten seconds? A minute, maybe. Well, according to a new study published in the journal Science, people really don't like to be left alone with nothing to do other than think. In fact, when participants of this study were given the choice of thinking for up to 15 minutes or giving themselves a painful electric shock, 67% of men and a quarter of women would rather electrocute themselves. So why do people find thinking so unenjoyable? Professor Timothy Wilson, psychologist at the University of Virginia, led the study and he spoke to naked scientist Greer Jackson. We were struck by how in this modern age people seem not to take much time to withdraw from the world and just use their own minds to entertain themselves. So we wanted to see whether people could do it in experiments. So we brought people in and asked them to just spend anywhere from 6 to 15 minutes entertaining themselves with their thoughts. And we gave them two rules. We said, please try to stay awake and please stay in your chairs. We didn't want people to get up and and start exercising. Uh, But we just left them there and then we came back and asked them questions like, well, okay, how enjoyable was it? You know, most people found it pretty hard to do. So you moved on and did another study after that, I believe, which gave people the opportunity to either, again, sit in the room for 15 minutes or give themselves an electric shock. Why were you giving people the option to give themselves an electric shock? Well, by that time, we had done several versions of this study, and we kept being struck by how many people found it difficult to just use their own minds. So that led us to think, gosh, you know, maybe the mind is just built to engage in the world and people might even find it preferable to have some kind of negative stimulation to no stimulation. So we decided to find out and we, we, everyone was asked to take a sample electric shock to start with and it was kind of like a severe static shock. And uh, then we asked people to spend, um, in this case, it was 15 minutes just thinking. But we told them that if they wanted, the shock was still available and if they could just press a button and get it again. And I have to say, we had no idea what to expect. I mean, there were some of us on our research team who said, you know, why are we doing this? No one's going to, to shock themselves. But many people did, especially men, that they seemed to uh, want to shock themselves out of boredom, so to speak. Why? Why would you choose to give yourself an electric shock? I do think the human mind evolved to engage in the world. It's kind of disconcerting to have nothing to do for even that short period of time. Some people just found it too difficult to keep a sustained line of thought and and wanted some sort of external stimulation. So how many people did take the voluntary electric shock and how many times are we talking about here? Are we talking once just as pure curiosity or are we talking multiple times during that 15-minute period? Well, we did find a gender difference where the men were more likely to give themselves a shock. It was two-thirds of men and a quarter of women gave themselves at least one shock. And it varied. Um, There were some who just gave themselves one, some three or four or five. We did have one man who pressed the button 190 times, much to our surprise. And I think given the nature of our shock apparatus, I'm not sure that uh, he actually got 190 shocks. 
But nonetheless, he did press the button 190 times, and I'm not sure what was up with him. 190 times seems pretty extreme, no? Maybe he was a masochist or something. I, I, I don't know. I'm not sure what was up with, with him. Maybe he was just extremely bored. <laughs> Perhaps, maybe. So, given this, why is thinking so unenjoyable? Surely it's a part of normal people's lives. We daydream perhaps when we're finding something a bit boring. So why is it so unenjoyable? I don't want to exaggerate this. I do think that all of us in our daily lives, as you say, we do find our minds wandering to pleasant topics. I think what's hard in our studies is doing this on the spot. It's kind of hard to turn it on and off to keep one line of thought going for, for that long. We don't know all the answers, certainly. I, I, I remain convinced that maybe if people had just a little something else to do, that it might actually free up their minds to think about other things. Because when, when people tell us they, they enjoy thinking, often they are doing something else, like walking or driving or exercising. So maybe the difficulty is that when the mind has absolutely nothing else to do, it's, it's just in an uncomfortable state. Should we be dedicating, say, an hour of thinking as you would do to piano practice or reading? Are there any practical benefits? I'm convinced there are. I think we certainly need more studies to show that. But I think having this as a tool in our mental toolbox, being able to retreat into our minds for even just a few minutes and, and use that as a way to reduce stress, I think that would be a good thing, but uh, we haven't quite figured out yet how to teach people to do that. Thanks to you, Timothy Wilson, Professor of Psychology at Virginia University, and he was speaking to Gray Jackson. Well, that's all we have time for today, unfortunately. Thanks also to Gero Meisenbach for describing his work earlier in the show in Fruit Flies. In the next episode, how a revolution in technology is bringing an unprecedented flood of information about the brain. And with this, concerns over use, including students buying memory boosting chemicals or smart drugs over the internet, hoping for this. Even a small 10% improvement in a memory score could lead to a higher A-level grade or degree class. And how a £100 helmet sending an electric stimulus through your scalp to your brain has been claimed to help with, well, almost anything. Mood, decision-making, morality, anxiety, depression, mathematical learning, language, memory autism, ADHD, Parkinson's disease, pain. Now, either this is magic <laughs> or we're not putting tough enough filters on the messages that we're giving out. Alongside brain scans to keep people in or out of jail and the military latching into the mind for warfare gains. So who's responsible for how these neuroscience findings are being employed? Is it the government or misrepresentation by the press? I'll put it out there. For the first time in my experience, I think we're in an area where the hype is led by scientists. That might be because we've been overtaken by the, the, the amount of data that we've got and we don't know what to do with it ourselves. We'll be back again in the next episode to open our minds. My name's Hannah Critchlow and this is a special Naked Neuroscience episode from the Federation of European Neurosciences 2014 Forum, reporting from Milan. Milan.